Tell us a little bit about yourself. I grew up here in Brooklyn. I'm from Texas, born and raised. I live in an apartment in Saskatchewan. From the New England area. I'm from England, Alabama. Boston originally. Delaware. West of Germany. Huron County, Michigan. I live in Northeast Indiana. Grew up in Belfast. California. Sounds Like Hate is a new podcast series from the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm Geraldine Moriba. And I'm Jamila Paxima. This is part three of Baseless. I was also called to a meeting with the National Security Unit of the RCMP, which is the federal police force in Canada. And they, you know, warned me that they were aware of death threats against me, that that was something I needed to be careful about. This first season is about how some people become extremists and how some of them disengage from a life of hatred. The RCMP wouldn't tell me. That was actually quite frustrating. I was like, is this someone locally making threats? How seriously should I take these? Eventually, the base released a propaganda video where myself, alongside a few other journalists, were explicitly threatened. One of the investigators DM'd me on Twitter and just said, hey, I don't know if you've seen this, but this video exists. And then at the very end, in quick succession, it flashes my photograph. When we left part two, Ryan Thorpe, the reporter with the Winnipeg Free Press, had broken his story about Patrick Matthews, the former Canadian reservist who had fled Canada and was likely hiding in one of the base's underground cells in the U.S. These people are trying to rattle the cages of journalists, the few journalists that actually cover this stuff, but that's not how things work in liberal democratic societies. You know, the, the press has the right to report on these people. I think this type of journalism is important, so I'm certainly not going to shy away from doing it just because neo-Nazis are trying to, you know, make me scared. While some members of the base were trying to scare reporter Thorpe, I mean, you probably heard about what happened in Winnipeg. Others were trying to help Matthews, a fugitive from the law. Yeah, I was kind of involved in that. I was supposed to go there with them. Like this alleged member of the Canadian Armed Forces, who calls himself but, you know, Dakov. Logistics and stuff, renting cars. I'm still glad he was able to get out even without our help, though. As Patrick Matthews evaded arrest, these secret audio recordings were being made inside the base's vetting room. Ronaldo Nazaro, the leader of the base, continued to interview new recruits from his home in Russia, sometimes while his wife and children were there too. My kids are breaking up, but don't worry, as long as the background noise doesn't bother you. On the call with Dakov, Nazaro blamed the Canadian reporter for exposing the base. He went in, got the information he needed, and he got out before he was exposed. And, uh, and so in, in, a, in a way, it actually speaks uh, to the strength of our security, I think, you know, in that Because he was only able to do, like, so much damage. Like, he only got one guy. Like, he infiltrated the main chat, only was able to get one guy. Dakov says he learned about the base through Fascist Forge, an internet forum. Are you on Fascist Forge? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Okay. What's your username there? Same as this one, Dakov. Okay. Okay, so you haven't even gone to... You haven't even got to basic training yet. No, not yeah. yet. I was supposed to go this September, but they reassigned me. 
Dakov is typical of applicants to the base. He's young, aspires to be in an elite military program, makes music on SoundCloud, and he's a racist. Oh yeah, when I first came to Canada and realized I was like one of the few white people in my fifth grade class, that was, that was the first time I ever felt white, I guess you could say. Because when you live in a place that's everyone's the same as you, you're already in a way connected with it. You don't notice it. But when you're in a place, in a foreign place, and you're surrounded by all types of foreigners, your identity feels like it's in danger. He had applied months earlier, but Nazaro wanted to hold off on Dakov's vetting process until there were at least three members to form his Canadian cell. Here, Dakov explains his radicalization journey while dropping clues about other white supremacists with names and affiliations. We don't have anyone in your area. That hasn't changed yet. Oh, I found a few guys that I talked to who were willing to join. One guy named Peck. Some of you might know him. He lives like two hour drive away from me. I told him, like, dude, I'd be down to meet you and we can talk about the base if you're interested in joining. And he said, yeah, I'd be down. There's one other guy also close to him. And he claims he has a Ruger Mini. Says he's uh, getting his restricted power license so he can uh, purchase ARs. And I've talked to that guy too. And he's also close in my area. After they right. passed off his like email vetting and like voice vetting too, I can go and meet them. And like, yeah, yeah for exactly. Just tell us a little bit like about yourself. Guys, we don't really know you, including myself. I got into fascism. Uh, Back when I was like 14, 15, a few months later, I got in contact with this guy named Heinrich from AW. You probably, you've probably seen him in the ProPublica documentary. He was the guy that called Sam Woodward the one-man Gage wrecking crew. Mm-hmm. And he, um, after I got in contact with him, I also got in contact with Lion. And Lion added me to the main AW chat where I met uh, all the, all the boys. And afterwards, I've just, uh, Crocodile and, uh, Khmer, Crocket. He doesn't like to be called Khmer anymore, but I mean, at this point, it's, all of this is confidential anyways. But he told me that because I'm in Canada, it complicates things, so I might as well just talk to Dark Foreigner and join Northern Order, which I did. In regards to Sonnen Creek Division, there's been a sort of a resurgence in the group, and it's... Partly been because uh, Talo appointed me as like temporary leader of SKD, and we've been getting a lot of like guys. And... What are you going to bring to the base uh, you know, to kind of reciprocate? Not much other than like technical skills, such as um, I did work on planes a while back. I don't know if like that's of any interest. I also did take two years of university grade physics. I know that'll come like handy down the road when it comes to, you know, ballistic type shit. Handmade weapons and stuff like that. What is your uh, religious belief system? Slavic paganism and uh, O9A. I wouldn't really call O9A like a specific like religious system. It's more of a way of life, more of a uh, path you go down. The Canadian Armed Forces have opened an investigation on this 19-year-old who says he lives in Ottawa, Canada. It turns out Dakov has been in contact with a few American members 
of the base for a while, including one who calls himself Merlin of Weird and says he's from San Bernardino, California. Another one, called Matthias, was on the call too. His real name is Matthew Bakari, as reported by the BBC. He lives near Los Angeles and is a founder of Fascist Forge. I like Dakov. Here's Bakari weighing in on whether to accept Dakov. If he does go overseas, obviously he's going to be away for a while. When you're deployed, you're not active. You really can't have any communication with us. So We are chasing truth, trying to understand the motivations of violent white supremacists and the people who want to be just like them. In this episode, we ask why American domestic terrorists are not being investigated with the same rigor as foreign terrorists. And as groups like the base plot violence and national destabilization, are there accelerationist goals and desires to take advantage of lawlessness, leading us closer to a civil war? We asked the D-Lab at UC Berkeley to use their machine learning program to forensically analyze hate speech in the 83 hours of secret recordings we obtained from the base's vetting room. This project, we're creating a ruler for hate speech. Chris um, Kennedy is a biostatistician. Hateful. They could be encouraging genocide or dehumanization of a vulnerable population. Others may be promoting stereotypes or promoting bias that might lead to more extreme hate speech in the future. This analytical tool was built on content collected from YouTube, Twitter, and Reddit. On these recordings, they found mostly moderate scores punctuated by extremely genocidal and dehumanizing hate speech. What really needs to happen right now is about 200,000 true patriots need to march up into fucking into the Capitol building and just kill everybody fucking in it and then turn around and say, look, we're done. This is what's going to happen from this point on. Because our our forefathers gave us the keys to the kingdom and told us what we needed to do. The next step would be to see what's the connection between hate speech and hate acts. Claudia Natalia von Vacano also works at the D-Lab at UC Berkeley. My sense is that the phenomena at play in the recordings that you shared with us is not hate speech. She's the executive director of social science and digital humanities. But rather it's the mobilization of extreme far-right movement that may also lead to terrorism. There were things that were mentioned that had to do with, you know, being armed and organizing convening in person, meeting at a certain locality. All of those things are actions related to this sort of bigger plot of terrorism. Was there any terroristic language and discourse that stood out to you in this context? Certainly there was uh, a lot of mention of, first of all, organizing, very structured organizing, taking very seriously the ideology wanting to learn and be rigorous about the ideology, which is, a, in my opinion, a eugenics, um, racial supremacy ideology that's tied to a sense of protectionism. And then there were uh, mentions of contributions of ammunition, 
and contributions of weapons. There were phrases like, we're definitely looking for people who can contribute as well as get something out of it. Or you did an awesome job. It came out awesome. That was so cool. These aren't hateful comments. What does that indicate? Camaraderie, a sense of belonging, a sense of support, a sense of you are one of us. That positive sentiment language is not surprising. I think the sort of frightening part is the juxtaposition of that extremely supportive language with egging on for, oh, you know, we can do this violent thing. In other words, these are in-group conversations among like-minded men. They didn't use hate speech often, but when they did, they spoke about the genocidal apocalyptic collapse of America. More often, though, we found men combing through their past, discussing their personal failures and private fears. A great deal of what they say points to the very basic human desire to belong, to belong to something bigger than themselves. What's most disturbing about these terrorists is how this festering need for belonging drove them to extremes. What, what is your interest in us? Hmm. As far as what I want to get out from the base, I would say basically comradeship from people who I can be completely and totally honest with. There's nobody around here at all that really believes the way I believe. And I'm dealing with all, you know, just people I don't connect with all day. And, and it'd be good to have a, group, a network of people that I can rely on. To be honest, it's the most uplifting stuff. Like, honestly, like, nothing really has given me purpose as much as national socialism. I was in the Air Force for a while. Um, didn't really get along with that. Um, but ended up moving down here to, um, about five years ago, trying to get closer to my kids, <clears throat> see them somewhat. But um, hasn't really panned out too well. And then I contacted you guys because I was like, yeah, kind of, I'm tired of being by myself. I'm tired of feeling like I, I don't belong. I'm, I'm by myself, dude. <laughs> I feel like I'm by myself, so. I'm tired of, of being you know, nobody out here. You know, I, I want to commit myself to my duty, you know, my ancestral duty here. And, and whatever I can do to chip in on that, there's nobody else out here who's actually committed to action, you know? Most people out here are more concerned with just rattling around and making no progress whatsoever. You know, I, I just want to do something and I want to be with my brothers, you know. Uh, my name is Ali Winston. I'm an independent reporter and have uh, mostly focused on criminal justice and issues of surveillance and civil liberties. Winston has been on this beat for 14 years, most recently working on investigations with the BBC and ProPublica. He says Nazaro has real ties to intelligence agencies. He was a former FBI intelligence analyst who then went on to run a private security firm, an intelligence contractor that, worked, that did work for the uh, Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security. We were able to verify his company's work with the Pentagon and his former status with the FBI through pretty extensive sourcing. 
um, which I can't discuss for reasons of confidentiality, but this is a big reason why the Federal Bureau of Investigation is so concerned about him. Uh, I think I was... This is how Nazaro explains uh, his background. Mainly, um, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. That was, you know, a hefty portion of what I did. You know, it was mostly like military intelligence work. But I do have an intelligence background. I never hid that. You know, I was a defense contractor. I've mentioned that in the chat before. I've mentioned to people that my background is in intelligence. You know, it's like, I guess, an open secret at best. I mean, I have nothing I'm trying to hide, but I also don't try to, try to advertise it. If this is true, the question is, how can someone with these extremist views pass U.S. intelligence agency clearances at the highest level? And how can Nazaro be stopped today if he's running the base from Russia? Well, the United States doesn't currently have an extradition treaty with Russia. We were able to determine that Ronaldo Nazaro had attended a security conference um, as a potential vendor in Russia hosted by the um, Interior Ministry, Interior Security Ministry. We also know that the Bureau is investigating whether or not he has official ties to Russian security services. Um, it's a pretty safe conclusion to ascertain from those two points of information that he's being investigated as an active measure. And an active measure is a term of art intelligence communities use for um, an organization or an entity that's being run as an intelligence asset or as an influence operation by a foreign power. The potential here is that perhaps the Russian government is supporting him. Tacitly or overtly, that's what the American authorities and authorities in other countries are currently looking into. What do you think? I think that the facts we've put out there speak for themselves, and to speculate any further than that would be irresponsible. If they also think that I have connections, that I'm trying to claim that I have connections to Russian intelligence, and that I'm going to help them, you know, as like a Russian agent or something like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, this, I've never fucking said anything like that. Anytime people have jokingly or occasionally asked me outright, do I have connections to Russian intelligence or something, I've always denied it. Another question we're trying to answer on this podcast is whether white supremacy groups are being taken seriously enough given the volatility of 2020, because the men on these calls are certainly watching President Trump. His name was brought up 69 times and was mentioned in 18% of all conversations. Well, I think I started out just like anybody else. You know, I started out kind of right-wing, like Republican, sort of, uh, like a you know, Trump supporter, kind of Sivnat, sort of, I guess, and you know, just kind of followed the path I... Uh, Know, got more into race realism, and you know, it just kind of woke me up to uh, a lot of the disgusting things that are going on that are affecting my people. These domestic terrorists agreed having Trump in office furthered their mission. Uh, it's kind of like we're climbing a ladder. We, we, hit, we hit a rung and we hit another rung. And so I think this next election will be inter interesting. Depending on if Trump wins and if the left, depending on how bad they freak out, how bad they uh, riot and things like that. Uh, there's potential for some, you know, mass kind of lawlessness and things like that. For some of them, Trump didn't go far enough. I mean, I'm not saying that it was great in the sense that it got Trump, Trump elected because he's a, he's a clown pretty much. 
know, he's like the best shallow boy ever, but like the way that they were able to bring up the question of like race and identity was incredibly effective. Initially, we all thought he would be this huge racist accelerationist, but it became very clear almost immediately that he wasn't who uh, everyone thought he was. On January 14, 2020, warrants were issued for the arrest of seven base members. The FBI had uncovered evidence several members were plotting a violent attack on crowds in Richmond, Virginia. The arrest happened ahead of a pro-gun rally planned in front of the State House on Lobby Day. Governor Ralph Northam declared a state of emergency in an attempt to cut off an armed confrontation. Federal prosecutors say these men are dangerous, that they were recruited online by an underground white supremacist group that vowed to kill Jewish Americans and African Americans. On January 16th, one member was arrested. The next day, three more were picked up by authorities. Then President Donald Trump weighed in ahead of the gun rights rally. He tweeted in defense of the right to bear arms in Virginia. He said the state was under a very serious attack. Hello. So I'm calling you to check in and find out what you're seeing on the ground. Brett Barraquet, a Southern Poverty Law Center investigator, was there. Here in Richmond at the state capitol, and we've got uh, almost all pro-gun. Some Revolutionary War era style U.S. flags with 13 stars, Trump flags, pe lots of people in camouflage carrying guns, lots of signs. I see some people from the 3% militias out here, uh, some Oath Keepers, some Proud Boys. While an estimated 20,000 protesters, many of them armed, marched in Richmond in defense of their it's gun almost, rights. I don't want to say all white, but it is definitely heavily, heavily, heavily a white crowd. Base members everywhere else were scrambling to figure out the details of the arrests. But former FBI agent Mike German wasn't surprised. A lot of criminals are not very smart. He's and, more concerned uh, about why these crimes persist. That's how a lot of criminals get caught. Why is a group like the base especially dangerous at this particular moment in American history? I, I'm not sure the base is more dangerous than any other groups. These far-right and white supremacist groups have been a lethal threat in the United States for as long as there has been a United States. The only thing different from the way these groups operate is that they have the rhetorical support from the President of the United States and a free hand given to them by law enforcement. Uh, and that is extremely dangerous. Anytime the group believes that they have the support of government and particularly that law enforcement is looking the other way, they can engage in much more dangerous activities. The idea that far-right militants could come into a town, commit public violence and leave and even use that public violence to promote themselves in their next venture into the next town where they commit public violence gives them a broader opportunity to recruit more widely uh, to attract a more violent element and to test their tactics in a way that, that will make them much more dangerous. 
Hello, this is Jamila. I have Senator Durbin on the line now. Hello, Dick Durbin. Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois is one of the lead sponsors who introduced a domestic terrorism prevention bill. Uh, We should be keeping track of this. With the dramatic rise in white supremacist violence and death, there is a serious concern. No official law enforcement agency in the U.S. is monitoring white supremacists and other domestic terrorists close enough. This bill calls for the authorization of dedicated terrorism offices within the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and the Department of Justice. We want law enforcement agencies, federal law enforcement agencies, to assess domestic terrorism, including the particular threat of violent white supremacists, uh, focus their resources on the most significant domestic terrorism threats, and provide training and resources to local, state, and federal government agencies. People have forgotten that we're just uh, literally a year away from that horrible incident that occurred in El Paso, uh, where this man set out, this 21-year-old white supremacist, set out to kill Hispanics. 23 people were killed and 23 were injured. It was the deadliest attack on Hispanic population in modern American history. So how will the provisions in the domestic terrorism bill prevent a lone wolf or a small cell attack on innocent victims like those in El Paso? If it works, the people in law enforcement, they're doing uh, surveillance, collecting evidence, will start picking up elements uh, that uh, should lead them to conclude that there's white supremacist or nationalist group behind uh, some person's uh, political agenda. Uh, and their motivation, and start connecting the dots. That's what it's about. Uh, But they first have to be aware of the fact that this is a major challenge and a major problem, and it leads to violence and certainly leads to death in the extreme. How can we change culture within the FBI and law enforcement community to make it a priority? It starts at the top. It starts with the president, commander-in-chief, and the climate that's being created. Uh, And I think it it eventually plays its way down through law enforcement agencies, whether it's Department of Justice or FBI. You know, the president sets the tone. The president expresses the values. Law enforcement, not uh, exclusively, but to the large extent, is going to be uh, uh, motivated by that uh, that kind of uh, call to action. Opponents of this bill say there are already statutes to prosecute domestic terrorists. And this bill's designation of racially motivated violent extremists raises serious civil rights and liberties concerns. Instead of producing the data, the FBI manipulated its categories, combining white supremacists with black identities, extremists into this racially motivated violence category. Former FBI agent German says instead of crushing extremists like the base, this designation could be used to target protesters or activists, especially when it comes to property damage. So again, now that you saw both sides of the ledger, you wouldn't necessarily know which cases were white supremacists and which were targeting black people. Um, and likewise, they they combined anti-government militias, far-right militias, with uh, anarchist groups in an anti-government group uh, to mask how they were using their resources. Uh, but I think what, what is also problematic is, is the government's actions uh, in this manner of masking white supremacist violence tends to reinforce 
the, the beliefs within the white supremacist community that the government's actually on their side. Well, if the idea of designating domestic groups as terrorists is problematic, what do you recommend instead? I recommend that the government focus on actual acts of violence by by everyone. And once we understand that and understand how their violence actually works, we can better address it. And once we can better inform state and local law enforcement about how this activity occurs and where, they can be better trained and prepared to address that crime as well. All the talk about tight OPSEC and security, the base was infiltrated again, this time by an FBI agent who'd been inside this terrorist group for five months. Starting July 2019, the agency uncovered their violent plans by tracking activities of specific members, bugging audio, and recording video at their homes. Here is who was arrested. In Wisconsin, a federal criminal complaint was filed against 22-year-old Yusuf Omar Barashna, a.k.a. Joseph, for conspiracy and vandalism, spray-painting anti-Semitic statements, swastikas, and the base's logo on a racine synagogue. It's painful to talk to someone that, that has so much hate. Jenny Tassi is the director of the Jewish exist, Community right? Relations Council of the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. How surprised were you to find out that Yusuf has Jordanian roots and he's a member of a neo-Nazi white supremacy group? I, I can't read someone's heart. I don't know this gentleman, this individual, but I do know that he's 22 years old and, um, you know, at such a young age to have such uh, so much hate in, in the heart. But I think what's even more important is the healing process, right? I don't think that any Jewish person would say, we want him to spend as many years in jail and, and then come out and, and have the same hateful heart. You want that individual to have growth. If you could speak to Barasne today, what would you say to him? Ooh, Geraldine, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, <sighs> and he might be listening. What do you want him to know? There's so much more happiness in the world when you, you when you really decide to love thy neighbor as is is maybe overutilized as that term is, but it doesn't just mean to to love your neighbor or to see your neighbor, but really understand their experiences. And so, any hateful rhetoric you might have been taught over the years, the anti-Semitic things that may have been taught to you, are not true. In Georgia, three members of a cell were arrested. Jacob Caterley, 19, a.k.a. Pestilence. Luke Austin Lane, 21, a.k.a. The Militant Buddhist, or TMB. And Michael Helterbrand, 25, a.k.a. Helter Skelter. They were all charged with conspiracy to commit murder of a married couple believed to be anti-fascists. In Maryland, federal prosecutors arrested another trio. They were planning the armed confrontation at the gun rally in Richmond, Virginia. William Garfield Bilbrow IV, 19, a.k.a. Eisen. Brian Mark Lemley Jr., 33, a former Calvary Scout in the U.S. Army, a.k.a. Can't Go Back. And missing Canadian reservist Patrick Jordan Matthews, 27, a.k.a. Jimmy 
and Dave. The two Americans were charged with harboring an undocumented immigrant and with transporting firearms and ammunition with the intent to commit a felony. Canadian Matthews received additional charges for being an undocumented immigrant in possession of a firearm and for the destruction of evidence, including cell phones. Allegedly, it happened as the FBI raided their apartment. Patrick Matthews, him and reporter Thorpe, has more details. Um, allegedly built a machine gun, essentially, and began plotting to go down to this public rally and open up fire on the crowd. So what is the goal in trying to shoot up people who are out there fighting for their rights to bear arms? My suspicion is that it's to essentially frame the left. I mean, these people want to see increased political polarization on both sides of the spectrum. Why would some folks that are on the extreme right shoot up a Second Amendment rally when they're pro-Second Amendment? Um, but it's they're interested in indiscriminate attacks. You know, they just want to do things to foment anger and potential political violence in society. Um, so it, at, at that point, it doesn't really matter if your target is the left or the right. I think all of those people um, are enemies to them. They just, they want to do whatever they can to increase that political polarization and make it more likely that violence will break out, that things will devolve into civil war. Altogether, in 2020, seven men from the base have been arrested. Thorpe attended Matthew's bail hearing. So the prosecution uh, laid out their argument for why um, he should not be granted bail, why he needed to be detained in custody, um, essentially saying that he was a violent individual motivated by a violent worldview. And the defense put forth a First Amendment uh, defense that essentially Matthews had every right in the United States to hold odious views. The prosecution countered that you know, Matthews wasn't arrested because he held odious views, but because he was expressing these things while also taking concrete steps towards perpetrating violence. This was Matthew's response to the evidence presented. At one point when the judge, either the judge or the prosecution, is reading into the court record um, the statement, the quote from his propaganda video that he had recorded that the FBI obtained where he says, you know, derail some fucking trains, poison some water supplies, kill some people. And as this is being read into the court record, Matthews is just leaning back in his chair laughing. These trials are expected to begin in 2021. It's still not clear what each cell knew about each other's actions. Remember, plausible deniability is a key part of their strategy. On September 21st, 2020, the domestic terrorism bill passed with an overriding majority vote in the Democratic House. These groups are not getting weaker. They are not heading off into the sunset. They are organizing and we have to organize as well. Congressman Brad Schneider, the co-sponsor, says he and Senator Durbin have been working hard to find support for two and a half years to advance this bill. We are seeing these, these, move, these movements growing. Uh, the Boogaloo movement that is uh, uh, gaining support across the country. Uh, we are in a very dangerous time. And every American and all the aspects of our government need to be very diligent in protecting our communities, protecting our, our citizens. 
when people try to play politics around this, it is not good for uh, any of us, and it, and it puts the nation at risk. We spoke with Senator Durbin's office, and they said they didn't expect this bill to pass a Republican-majority Senate. What would it take to get Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to bring it to the floor for a vote? At the end of the day, Mitch McConnell does what Mitch McConnell thinks is in his personal and political interests. So uh, every American should rise up. And my colleague, many of my colleagues on, on the other side of the aisle have, have rightly said there's no room for, for these groups within their party, in their party, but too many people have remained silent. And uh, I think it was Edmund Burke who said the only thing necessary for evil to succeed is for good people to remain silent. There's some evidence. Yeah, the group that I'm looking at on Telegram, for example, wasn't even created until May of 2020, which is five months later. So even though it was damaged, it's not destroyed. Megan Squire is a computer scientist at Elon University. She uses data mining to study far-right radical extremism. She was monitoring the base after the arrest as members shut their accounts and others bounced between internet platforms, trying to keep their conversations going. So even with these arrests, they're continuing to put up propaganda and look for recruits. Yeah, for sure. I, the one that I saw um, was several uh, videos, several photographs of them at a George Floyd protest up in, uh, I believe it's Michigan. So they're definitely still producing propaganda. It looks like about five guys in that cell. Does deplatforming work? Well, it depends what your goal is. If your goal is to disrupt the network and to stop these guys from hassling normal users on the platform, then yes, it, it absolutely does work for that. In a place where, where normal people are trying to have conversations and share normal people ideas, we cannot have neo-Nazis you know, trying to radicalize people and, and hassle them and calling them names and things like that. So um, to me, I think, I think it's a great idea to get them moved into their own little sort of world You've said that these extremist groups are moving towards a less centralized, darker version of the web that'll make it even harder to locate them. Um, and you described it as trying to hit Mercury with a hammer. Is that in some way already happening? Yeah, they're, they're moving to places that are encrypted and places that are harder to track. We're not quite there yet. They're still operating on mainstream platforms because that is where they go to recruit and uh, propagandize and harass others. Eventually, there will be, um, you know, uncensorable domains, uncensorable websites and things like that. That's where the technology is headed. But right now, that's still not happening. Doesn't that make it more difficult to stop? It is. And I think that's what's concerning to a lot of folks that do this kind of work and this kind of research is under trying to understand that structure, trying to understand the new methods of disrupting a network when it splinters like that into smaller and smaller pieces. I think that's, that is the challenge. Have you seen any evidence that Ronaldo Nazaro is still online and active since the FBI arrests? No, I haven't seen any evidence of that. Nazaro's internet silence doesn't mean the base has gone away. But we do see them still organizing online. Um, you know, they still have a Telegram channel. They still have somewhere around 300 subscribers. More concerning to Miller of the Southern Poverty Law Center is evidence the group is continuing to hold paramilitary training meetups. They are putting out propaganda videos that show them out engaging in paramilitary training. So it is still active um, in a 
much smaller form, but there are people still out there who are who are using the name the base and who are hoping to make new recruits. So this plan to have all these individual cells, I'm wondering if it's going to work in this prosecution because each of the members were individually charged mm-hmm. and they weren't charged as a group. Mm-hmm. So did the strategy work? So the arrests do achieve a few things. You know, for one, it, it does disrupt the network. Um, it stops some um, potentially violent things from happening. Um, it increases the paranoia of members, you know, who now have proof that the group was infiltrated. And it'll likely discourage new people from joining the group. But there's some, there are some drawbacks. And I think that's, that's kind of worth acknowledging, you know, in, in some ways, um, arresting members of the group can further radicalize people who are part of the base who, or who are part of the larger white power movement. Um, and that's because this is an anti-government group that believes that the state needs to be torn down in order to build fascism. And so when the state comes after them, it inflames their paranoia and it really affirms their beliefs that they're at war with the government. People who adopt extremist views shouldn't just be punished. They should be rehabilitated. We really need to actively work to address what draws people into far-right extremism in the first place. Before the arrests, Nazaro spoke about infiltrating an even larger group. Because that's going to be the first level defense or offense against he mentions it here on this 2018 it's, podcast. I would say something like infiltrating local, state and local law enforcement, mm-hmm. to me, would be the most obviously beneficial thing for any type of insurgency. Mm-hmm. Um, from like a higher strategic perspective, from like a policy perspective, if it was really possible to infiltrate and influence policy at the highest levels, then most likely you wouldn't even need a violent insurgency. It's believed Nazaro still operates out of his apartment in St. Petersburg, Russia. He is safe there for now. I said to myself, like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start this thing and I'm going to you know, give it a go. And I mean, if, if, if at, the end, if at the end of all this, it ends up just being me alone in the chat room, then I guess that's it. <laughs> I know it's time to close up shop, you know what I mean? But until that happens, you know, as long as I have like one other person there, you know, I'm going to keep, keep going. Yusuf Barashna from Wisconsin is the first in the sweep of arrests to plead guilty to his charges. And Michael John Heltebrand from Georgia was caught with a shank, a homemade knife, found in his prison cell. Remember the ecologist? Before the arrest, he brought three to four college friends to the base while he was doxxed by anti-fascists. And Eric, the 17-year-old in Michigan? I've gotten probably five or six solid guys that are definitely going to help out and uh, move up and join the community. After all the planning for a base meetup on his mother's property, it's not clear it ever happened. As for Dakov, the other Canadian recruit, Nazaro and the men in the vetting room worried about his OPSEC, but ultimately decided to let him into the base. Uh, he'd be in a much better position to, to, to join us when he gets 
done with his deployment risk. I just want to make sure that he's actually going to do stuff, I guess, you know, more, more than anything else. All right, so let's, let's just hold him to his word just as far as like bringing someone else in, then he'll be good to go. We contacted iFunny and Wire for a statement about the use of their platforms by domestic terrorists. Only Wire responded. The CEO said, Wire unequivocally denounces the use of its platform by neo-Nazis and all other extremist groups. So we wrote back to Wire and asked whether the base was disabled at any point. They still haven't responded. We also reached out to four divisions of the U.S. Armed Forces to share our findings. A significant number of applicants in the recordings from the base were active duty servicemen or had formerly served. None of the divisions responded to our request or a comment. For a second, I was kind of questioning, like, do I want to go to, actually go to prison? I mean, I, I, I seriously feel, still feel like I'm looking at it. I don't know what could happen next. I mean, I, I never saw this coming. So, you know, what it comes down to is like my kids, really. Like, like that's my, my, my number one inspiration. I mean, I, you know, I got to look at them in the eyes every day. And, and, I, and that makes me ask, you know, that, that's my motivation. Hey, you know, I, I want to do, I'm, I'm trying to do something for the, its future generation, you know, my kids included. Here's what we'd like you to take away. All that happens to us, our misfortunes, our embarrassments, our mistakes, all these things shape our lives. Unless we work at recognizing our common values, we're making each other our biggest enemies. Look, there's a lot of exaggeration and misinformation on these recordings, but there's also truth. What these terrorists choose to share and what they lie about tells us what they wish for and what they hope will happen. So we listen and will continue to listen. These are complicated stories about people who hold on to false histories and terroristic ideologies and draw boundaries that are skin deep. If anyone on these recordings happens to be somebody you might know, or if you have a tip you'd like us to investigate, send an email to soundslikehate at protonmail.ch. And if anyone you know has experienced a hate incident or crime, please contact the appropriate local authority or elected official. You can also document what happened at splcenter.org slash report hate. This is Sounds Like Hate, an independent audio documentary brought to you by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Additional funding comes from the Ring Foundation. Our sound engineer is Randy Scott Carroll. Our computer scientist is Will Creighton. Our associate producer is Jordan Gospore. Our music is composed by Warner Meadows. Sounds Like Hate is produced by Until 20 Productions. If you find this podcast interesting, then subscribe to find out when season two is released. I'm Jamila Paxima. And I'm Geraldine Moriba. Remember to rate and review. It really helps. Thank you for listening.